Welcome to Opus Private Clients Wealth Style Podcast. All of the material discussed on our podcasts have specific themes, and that's to move your wealth and lifestyle forward, increase your purpose, and provide you with clarity and confidence. Opus's mantra is always forward. We have found that regardless of one's wealth, moving your lifestyle forward is the number one priority for our clients. On our podcasts, we'll share our rich 35 years of experience in designing strategies, share clients' experiences, and introduce resources that have positively impacted our clients. We trust that you will enjoy our direct, transparent, and realistic approach to positively impacting the quality of you and your family's lives. Now, on to the show. So hello and welcome to another episode of the Opus Well Style Podcast. My name is Yvonne Watanabe here with my partner, Evan Wall. Evan, how are you, man? Doing great. Just had a great Father's Day. What about you? Same, same. It was, uh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Well, it we're, yeah, I know, right? Um, so we're excited today to have on Chalmers Brothers, uh, Char- Chalmers Brothers, a difficult name for me to say. Um, Evan, do you want to introduce Chalmers for us today? Uh, I'm going to do my best and Chalmers, maybe I'll, I'll let you do the, the bulk of it, but, uh, Chalmers, a best-selling author, certified personal executive coach, consultant, seminar leader, and speaker, many other things has a great, great Ted talk, former chairman and vistage CEO, private advisory board. There's a, there's a, a long list, but the, the, I'd say the main reason we wanted to have you come speak to us, uh, is because you wrote two amazing books, language and the pursuit of happiness and language and leadership excellence. So this one right here is a little heavier than I remember, but I thought, I honestly, I thought these, I thought both of those books were incredible. Some of the highly, highly recommend both of them. Um, especially the, you know, they, they both spoke to different things, but the language and the pursuit of excellence, much more so interacting with your staff, people, the, you know, building a culture inside of, uh, you know, your company and, just so many, so many great wisdom pieces to get out of both of those. So anyway, I'm super excited to have you on here. If you wouldn't mind, maybe share with share with us a little bit about your background, how it came to be that you got into this line of work and, and wanted to write both, both of those books. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it was a happy accident, really. You know, I have an engineering background and an MBA, and I was working in the consulting world. And my wife and I were living in New Orleans, and some friends of ours went to a workshop and would not be quiet. They just said, you guys have to go to this workshop. You have to go. And I promise you, this is where my mind was. I was like 25 years old. Mm-hmm. Well, number one, I, number one, I'm not really sure what a workshop is. Number mm-hmm. two, I'm pretty sure I don't need one. And number three, I thought, how good can this be if I've never heard of it? So I was very arrogant. And they finally said, look, we'll pay for y'all to go. And if you don't think it's worth it, don't pay us back. So we went, guys, and it it, it opened my world. It was my introduction to the world of ontological coaching, right? So we weren't being trained to be a coach. We were being coached. And I had my blinders taken off. It, it was it was an, an introduction to the power of language, to looking yeah. at language this way. And Do you think it, anyone doesn't have that initial reaction to that kind of work of just thinking, oh, that's not for me. I'm all set. Like, you know, it's, it's such a it, such a natural reaction. It was. I mean, and I was rock solid certain at yeah. 25, that if you didn't see things like I did, you were stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the way I see things is the way they are, right? And so yeah. I I got a dose in a weekend workshop that people of goodwill, guess what, can and do interpret radically different than I do. Mm-hmm. And they're valid expressions of what it means to be human, and they don't have bad intentions. 
And so this notion of the unique observer, right? We are simply unique observers. And that hooked me and I stayed with it. And again, the anchor was this thing called language is a generative thing that mm -hmm. we, speak our, we speak ourselves into the world. Whatever creativity is in the human being, it has something to do with our thoughts and something to do with our language. And so I stayed with it. I took a couple more courses from these guys in Louisiana. By uh, 1995, um, I, I learned about an organization called the Newfield Network in Boulder. And um, a gentleman named Julio Alaya uh, was the founder and was the main instructor leader there. And I did a one-year program called Mastering the Art of Professional Coaching in 1995. And in that year, I was taking the program knowing I was going to teach it, meaning I, I knew enough about this body of work. By that time, I'd left Anderson. I was a sole proprietor, you know, doing consulting work, coaching work. And I knew that I wanted to make my, my life around this. Now, I started doing workshops, but I have to be honest, when I first finished in January of 96, I was a whirling vortex of new distinctions. Mm -hmm. I couldn't talk about anything without wanting to talk about everything because it's mm -hmm. all. And it took me, honestly, almost a year to develop coherent modules, right, that had a beginning and an ending and activities where I could actually you know, do them. And I was doing strategic planning type consulting work. And I started saying, okay, I'll do your, your facilitation, but you got to give me a half a day up front to do what I want to do mm -hmm. as an investment for what we're going to do here collectively. And slowly that half a day began to be all that I was doing. And I, uh, I started you know, leading workshops and, and people started saying, where can I get a book about this stuff? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My internal thought process was number one, uh, I'm a practitioner, right? The people who taught me should write the book. I'm not smart enough to write a book. And gradually, guys, I had a like a Buddha or a cobbler has no shoes moment. I'm in the business of helping people move past unpowerful beliefs. And I apparently was the only person who didn't believe I could write the book. <laughs> and, so, mm -hmm. and so I started typing and the first one took me six years. Most of it was done when our kids were little. So I was writing between like four and six in the morning. And it came out in, I think, late 04, early 05. And gradually, and again, y'all, since 1996, this is all I've been doing. Right, mm -hmm. The workshop I did for you guys, the, um, I do half-day programs. My, my bread and butter is a six-month program called SOAR that basically models the second book, right, in terms of the material that we cover. There's, there's homework, and people are in accountability groups, and they have to have a professional goal and a personal goal. They meet offline without me. Uh, and I also do a lot of just half-day one-offs, you know, half-day workshops that, that people want a, an introduction to this work. But it's right. been it's been a joy. And one more thing, and then I'll kind of shift it back to you guys. The way I ended up uh, really writing the book and Vistage both, uh, this is my 25th year as a speaker on the Vistage Network, was another happy accident in a Rotary Club in Tennessee back in, goodness, back in 2000, no, back in 98, 1998, and the speaker did not show up, and the president said, can anybody fill 20 minutes? <laughs> I said, Nobody raised their hand, so I raised my hand, I can, I can do 20 minutes. So I'm talking about, you know, my little metaphor is the big eye in the sky looking at a stick person, right, for self-awareness and mm -hmm. self-responsibility and about the power of language and that leaders get paid to have effective conversations and all this. And two people came up after the meeting 
One, you say, you know, my name's so-and-so, I'm CEO of a local company. I belong to a leadership peer group. He said, if you can do a half-day version of what you just did, I think we benefit from it. He said, never heard anybody really talk about leadership this way, and you'd be exposed to a wider world. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about, but the answer is yes. And 25 years, 25, 25 years later, now, now Vistage is a, a central part of my life. Yeah. And another person came up and said, I'm so-and-so. And in the U.S. Social Security Administration in the Southeast, we're doing an RFP for a big training. Would you like to be included? I said, absolutely. And I submitted, didn't get to work. But a month later, he called and said, you know, the winning company isn't able to do it for whatever reason. You got the job. And guys, that turned into 24 two-day leadership workshops, one one per month over two years. And that's when people started asking about the book. And so when I started to write the book, the table of contents of my first book is the agenda I had for that two-day program, because that's all I knew, right? That's all I knew. So the table of contents, so both the book and my Vistage relationship were triggered by me saying yes. Yes. Asking me if I could do something. And so I tell, my kids, I tell my kids, look, if someone asks you something and it's it's kind of in your wheelhouse, say yes. Mm-hmm. If you don't know, again, power of language stuff, right? You don't know where it's going to lead. You First of all, know. I love the thought that the Social Security Administration is has been exposed to this stuff. It's just, I, I wouldn't have seen that coming, but. I don't lead. Uh, I don't lead with that one. Normally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I hear you. <laughs> But uh, so like you said, my head is swirling with there are so many incredible concepts in in both books that but we, we don't have a day and a half here. Right. So we need to kind of condense it down into something where our listening audience can you know walk away with some insights. And so one of the things that you mentioned, maybe we can start here is language is not just descriptive, it's generative. And maybe speak to a little bit about what you mean by that and then how how you how do leaders go about using language to create culture inside of a company? Beautiful question. Um, the way I get in my workshop to be able to talk about language this way is I ask leaders first, look, of all the 10,000 things you have to do to be an effective leader, what are the most important? One or two or three things you say that you get paid to do as a leader. And they answer with things that we could predict, right? I get paid to groom the next generation of leaders, to shape the culture, to drive profitable growth, right? I get paid to be the the face of the company, right? To improve processes. And I said, oh, that's great. Uh, And what would a camera see you doing as you're doing that? So I'm watching you elicit creativity and build processes and strong teamwork and shape the culture. I'm watching you do that. What do I see you doing as you're doing that? And with a little reflection, well, the answer is you would see me engaging with people. You would see me in conversations. Mm -hmm. So in a meaningful way, leaders get paid to have effective conversations. Leaders are conversational architects and conversational engines. And because of the centrality of conversations for leadership effectiveness, right, now we get to talk about language because that's what this is. And so the tee up question is always this. If you were to ask 100 people or 100,000 people, what is language? What is language for? Well, the vast majority always answer with some version of a tool for communication or something along those lines. And the notion is, yes, and if it's a tool, it's a tool you can't put down. This one's interestingly different because it appears to be the one tool we need for every single other tool we'll ever pick up. 
So this notion, language creates and generates, it doesn't only describe, some examples are, if I uh, ask you to have lunch with me next week at one o'clock, if you say yes, we just invented a next week at one o'clock that five seconds ago wasn't gonna happen. Mm -hmm. We're not describing anything. We're making something happen. Think about every time in our lives we ever said the word yes. So I'm talking every single time in our life, the word yes popped out of our mouth. The question is, if all those times instead we had said no, would our life be different? Well, yes, oh, it'd yeah. be radically mm -hmm. different. These mm -hmm. doors would have opened. I'd have moved in the world this way and not this way. And I offer people this. I said, y'all knew this before you met me. Maybe not exactly the way I'm focusing on it or exactly the way I'm emphasizing it. But in a real way, I, I want to be a professional reminder. I want to remind people of some things that they do know about the power of language and frame it in a way that they can more effectively apply it. So guys, everything, our country was declared into being. Organizations are declared into being, right? And this is so close, we don't see it. They're all declared into being. And so this notion, when you look at an organization, number one, leaders get paid. Being a strong leader has nothing to do with your arm strength. It's a metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. Being a strong leader has to do with your capacity to engage in certain conversations that consistently produce two types of outcomes, quantitative and qualitative. And for me, the most obvious quantitative outcome is execution or productivity. And the most important qualitative outcome is culture, right? So there's a quantitative side and a qualitative side to organizational life. And culture and execution are obviously related. But the notion is this, when you look at what an organization is, and I'm talking any company, my wife's medical practice, GM, Coca-Cola, a little pizza stand, it doesn't matter. Organizations at their core may be understood as human beings coordinating action, but they're not coordinating action with magic. They're coordinating action with certain types of conversations. And these are promises, commitments, agreements. I use these words interchangeably. So when you look deeply at a company, what you're gonna see is that it's a bunch of people and they're coordinating action, they're working together. And the way they're working together is they are making and managing promises. Big ones, little ones, boardroom, bathroom, email, sticky note, right? So the company can be understood as a network of interdependent commitments, driving quantitative and qualitative outcomes. And the notion is you can coordinate action well, or you can coordinate action not so well, but you can't not do it, right? right? It's fundamental to organizational culture. The, the way that we do the commitment management dance has a giant impact on a quantitative outcome called productivity or execution and a qualitative outcome called culture, right? And so leaders' conversations, right, as we move in this direction, leaders' conversations about culture have a lot to do with values and behaviors, right? What is it, what are the things that, that we're gonna embody in terms of how we treat each other, right? So there's a lexicon, there's a vocabulary, right? And for most organizations, it's mission, vision, values, goals and objectives, right? And strategies, right? How are we going to do this thing called coordinate action, right? Where are we going to our organizational vision, goals, and objectives? And where are we coming from? What are we standing on? These are our standards, our principles, our purpose, and our values. Do you think that, sorry. Yep. Do, do you think that there's, is there, is there one that needs to come before the other? You know, is the, the culture, creating the culture more important than, you know, the, the 
quantitative strategies or do you really need sort of a process in place that, and then the culture kind of evolves? So how, how do you sort of see it? That's a great question. My experience is this for startups, right? The, or the founders values are so obviously what the anchor is, right? Mm -hmm. If it's a sole proprietor, a, a one person starting up a firm and that way the culture almost always starts anyway, um, as what are the values of the founder? right? What's the work ethic of the founder, the direction of the founder? And as more and more people come on, it can be you know thinned out and more diluted. But your question about which comes first, you know, there's a lot of work that's been done on organizational culture. And Edward Schein, S-C-H-E-I-N, has a definitive book, at, at least to me, on culture. And I, I remember one of the things he said, and it may sound counterintuitive, but it's don't focus on building the, the organizational culture absent solving a business problem. What is the problem? What is the issue that you want to, to tackle, you know, to accomplish? And the culture needed you know, to get that result. But in a vacuum, at least his, his perspective is in a vacuum, it's not so it, it's not such a value-added activity if you don't connect it to a core business problem, right? The other aspect of culture that lately has been more clear to me, at least than it was early in my career, well, number one, in my career, y'all, I've been doing this for 36 years. I've had more conversations with leaders in the past five years about the conscious and intentional creation of culture as a competitive advantage than I had in the first 31 years combined. Mm -hmm. So something is happening right now, right? We're not the only ones having this conversation. That's interesting. Something is happening, I mean it, right now, and we can talk about why that is, right? I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, more and more organizations are using teams, right? So collaborative activity, you know, it is, is more important. There's been a clear shift away from command and control hierarchical structures, right? They're trying to decentralize decision-making as much as we can, which means people, it, it helps if they know why they're doing what they're doing. <laughs> And so all of those, I think, and I think younger people are simply more, I think younger people value culture in a way that maybe people in my generation did not. Meaning when I was growing up, it was more of a command and control world. And you know, my kids are 31, 29, and 26, and that doesn't work for them. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like the, the younger generations understand that there are options. Yes, and so absolutely. they 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 feel like they can be more selective of where they go take those opportunities, and so culture plays a bigger part. You know, right. for older generations, it was almost like I am just grateful that I have a job, and I don't you know who am I to you know go seek a culture where I'm just excited that I have a position. I should be grateful for what I currently have. I don't disagree. I think there's a social contract has changed. Right, mm -hmm. the social contract used to be some version of the company offers you employment basically for life and you give them loyalty. Right. But that, you know, that is not, not the case at all anymore. People do not join a firm in their twenties with the expectation that they're going to be there a long, long time. I mean, people not just change jobs, they change careers yep. right? in ways that, uh, and, and I, I would agree. I think because of that, right. Culture influences the type of people that would even consider working at a place it influences your ability to retain those people and leverage their contribution over time, right? To solve problems without damaging the relationships. 
And, and a lot of my thinking right now around culture, and again, in many ways, organizational values can be too abstract. Meaning what does respect mean to a VP, to an administrator? What does collaboration mean? Uh, what is innovation in a broad sense? I think we understand them, but in terms of making them actionable, so more and more companies are having conversations about behaviors. If the value is respect, what is the behavior that embodies it? And what is the behavior that does not? So these conversations, again, if leaders are, are conversational architects, some of the important conversations, and y'all, I, I have a house drawing, right? The roof of the house is the vision, the goals, and the objectives, right? Where the organization is going to. Mm -hmm. the foundation of the house is where you're coming from, what you're standing on, which is your purpose, values, principles, standards, right? Where you're coming from. And the middle are the people coordinating action. Well, the conversations from a leadership standpoint, at least three fundamental conversational processes. Number one is the initial establishment and articulation of the roof and the foundation. What, what is the purpose? What are the values? What are the behaviors that we are going to say are important enough to embody, right? This is how we treat each other. Right? This is what customer service means. This is what customer intimacy means from a behavioral standpoint, right? So the initial establishment, then it has to be in something in your ongoing, in your onboarding process, right? You know, the, 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 when people are brought into the organization, I like to say there's a strong version of onboarding and there's a weak version. Uh, the weak version of onboarding is osmosis, meaning let's sit the new guy next to Phil and hope it rubs off, right? And let the strong... The strong version of onboarding is it, it, it's a purposeful, intentional conversation, right? That's created on the front end of somebody's employment. And so in addition to the initial establishment and then the onboarding, then they have the ongoing, right? How are you going to reinforce, bring this into the daily fabric of organizational life, whether it's in performance management, in the way that we start meetings? Many organizations have like a, a value or behavior of the week, right? They have a touch point, right? At the beginning of every meeting, for example, whether it's respect or innovation or creativity, they talk about what it means. And then let's go have a meeting. Right? You bring up something interesting, Chalmers, around sort of, you know, the the if you, the onboarding of it. And it sort of struck something for me where, you know, a lot of our a lot of our employees are working virtually, right? And I think, you know, in this sort of new virtual world, you know, there's a lot of conversation around, you know, we we're losing connectivity and we really want people in house because it's going to be more collaborative for those companies that are re remaining remote, right? How, what are your suggestions on how to create culture, sustain culture? You know, what are the things that you would recommend for, for those that are, that are going to remain sort of in different locations? You know, I think it may be more important, not less important in those kind of situations. I would absolutely recommend regular time when if we're virtual, if we're all here together, we're, we, we, we have a regular time where I can see everybody and we invent, we invent conversational processes where we get to know each other, right? If, even if it's a virtual conversation, one of the things I do in a workshop is called a conversation for relationship. The notion is this. The vast majority of our relationships are not sexual and they are not physical. They're conversation, right? Let's say if you and I only talk about sports and the weather and that's it, we can say we have a certain type of relationship, but then we start talking authentically, sharing our concerns and our values and our hopes and our fears and 
After a while, we say, you know what? My relationship with Yvonne is a lot deeper. Well, of course it is. Look at what we talk about, right? So I would say on the uh, that if leaders are interested, if they have a remote workplace, and one way to keep the connection strong is to understand that relationships are built on conversations and to create situations where we purposely engage with people, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but we have a group setting. We have a group setting. And y'all, one of the things I do, whether it's virtual or in person, in my conversation for relationship, I have four, four points. Number one, number of siblings in your house when you were growing up as a kid. Number two, your position in the birth order. Number three, something interesting that nobody else probably knows about yourself, your family, or your hometown. And I add number four, a childhood challenge you dealt with or overcame. And we simply have a structured self-disclosure. We, we simply share our version of that and we listen to one another and ask questions. And I do it in, in both in-person and virtual, but it's about a 15-minute activity with groups of four, groups of five. And so you're in, you're out, but, but that regular conversation, understanding that our relationships are built are built on conversations. If leaders are conversational architects, right? But again, that is a template, not the template. You could do anything, right? You could do your first job and something you learned. You could do, you know, the most unusual pet you ever had. It really doesn't matter, right? It really doesn't matter. But what we're doing is we're harnessing the power of language as a relationship builder. Mm -hmm. Becoming an expert at conversations, intentional yes. conversations. Intentional conversations. One of, one of the examples that I I want to bring up and maybe you can speak to is about building culture. It's important to sometimes, if not often, have difficult conversations. And uh, I have uh, someone that I, that I work with that in the past would do things that maybe would bother me because uh, they weren't up to my expectations, mostly around time expectations when things were, were getting done. And I would find myself often making either backhanded comments of like, yeah, we, as discussed, we need to like get this done sooner, et cetera. And then I read your book and then we had a, a great conversation around what are, what are, what are the, what are the, our shared expectations? Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah. and, and I asked him, I said, what do you think is an appropriate expectation for getting this done? And, and he, you know, wrote out whatever he wrote and I, you know, commented a little bit and maybe pushed back a little bit, but, you know, we came to a shared agreement on expectations. Sure enough, a week or two goes by and he missed those, the, those shared expectations. And then it was much easier for me to say, remember a week ago, you said this was our shared expectation and you didn't meet it. Yep. And so he was, I mean, it was, he was so much more uh, open to receiving that than just me kind of, kind of pushing back on a, my my annoyance in the past because now it's a shared expectation. I love I love that you said that. You know, I I believe a couple of things here. Number one, anybody can have an easy conversation. Mm -hmm. It separates nobody from nothing. Number two, I believe this: any organization's output, goods or services, is directly related to the quality of conversations that take place inside that organization. Directly related, context and content. For me, one of the best things I ever learned about difficult conversations, if, if, if we have avoided a conversation, most of us did so for a reason. And that reason lives, does it not, as an internal narrative. Mm -hmm. That's where it lives. Now, if our big eye self-awareness muscle is turned on enough that we can articulate what that concern is, that's what we speak out loud up front. Evan, I have a concern. 
about a conversation I want to have with you. Number one, I have a concern that you may misinterpret what I'm saying. Uh, I have a concern that this may may get in the way of our friendship. And if I'm honest, I have a little concern. If I talk to you about this, you might quit. And I do not want you to quit, not in this economy, but the status quo can't continue. And I'm struggling to bring some things to your attention in a way that will allow us to really be productive and have shared understanding of where we're going. Are you open to a conversation with me or some version of that, right? Mm -hmm. but, the, but the notion is if we have a background concern about a difficult conversation, we almost always do. That's what you speak out loud up front. Before you get to the content, right? Before you even get to the content, this is the context. And this separation of context and content was one of the best practices I was ever taught. Another way to create context that many people do, I think, instinctively, is simply declare the value of the relationship to you. Evan, I value our relationship. Mm -hmm. and I value it professionally and personally, and I'd never do anything to intentionally harm it. And I need to have a conversation with you that I'm kind of struggling with, like that. And mm -hmm. this, this to me was one of the most powerful things I've learned. And in Vistage, I got taught a phrase that has served me as a husband, as a dad, as an uncle, as a brother, right? Serving as a coach, as a consultant. And the term is carefrontation. Carefrontation. I care enough about you to initiate a conversation with you that in this moment, I'm not 100% sure how it's going to go. I care more about supporting you and your career growth. I care more about that than my hands not sweating. And I like to say it this way. Support isn't clapping while someone's going off the cliff. Right. right. You know, I, I think the common thread between both of the, the two approaches is, is obviously just transparency and honesty yeah. and really just being as open as you can with what is going on between your ears before you yeah. start the conversation. Right. So that context, I think, is incredibly valuable. It's um, tremendous. It's yeah. tremendous, Yvonne. And, and because we have a BS detector, we also have an authenticity or a sincerity detector. Mm -hmm. Right. And we do. When it, whatever energy is, it's real. You can't fake it. You can't fake this. When I'm in the presence of someone who is authentic, sincere, I want to play. I believe this. Leadership has gone from command and control to inspire and enroll, and authenticity is enrolling. Yeah, it's enrolling energy in these conversations. What? Let, one of the great things that I that I got or learned from I don't even remember which book. It's probably both books, but the impact of your mood or anyone's mood on your ability to learn, on your uh, ability to create culture, on your ability to create context, and yeah. so. First of all, can you speak a little bit to that, but then also expand on, you know, how can we, how can we improve our mood, our, our, our employees moods before, you know, having maybe a difficult conversation? Perfect. Um, one of the most foundational aspects of that's in both of my books and in the work that I was taught is this notion that we are each a unique observer. Right. We are each a walk. Like if we took a tour of a building, whatever, and we stayed together and we came back and the tour guide said, what did you notice on the tour? Well, how many answers is he or she going to get? Well, how many of us went on the tour? Right. It happens every time. So we're unique observers as a starting point. And but we're not a walk and talk and eyeball. We are 
a bundle of congruency among three things, our language, our moods and emotions, and our physical body and biology. And those three are absolutely connected, right? We are a walking, talking bundle of coherency. So that means that, well, many of us exercise, which is body, and then we feel better, which is mood. Well, that's kind of why we do it, right? But what if you waited till you felt better before you exercised? You may not get off the couch, right? Mm -hmm. And when you exercise and feel better, now we're in the language circle, do we not interpret the same flat tire or offhand comment a little differently? Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a coherency, right? And so whenever we talk about moods, moods have accompanying narratives, right? A mood of resentment carries with it an internal story of I'm the victim, this isn't fair, right? Um, a mood of ambition, I can see this as a possibility. Let's go here, let's go there, right? So there's a linguistic aspect to all these moods, just as there's a biological aspect, right? In resentment, we're more closed and hunched over and we breathe differently. You know, one of my teachers said, the way you stand is the way you stand in the world. It's not innocent. Right? There's a there's a coherency, right? And so when we think about moods, well, the, the distinction I was taught is this. Moods and emotions are both predispositions for action. The emotion is a short-term predisposition, obviously shaped by an external event. I walk around the corner, almost step on a poisonous snake, I'm instantly an emotion of fear, but that's not the same as living my life a fearful man. Are you with me? That, mm -hmm. that, that there are short-term shifts mm -hmm. that are obvious and externally generated, but then we kind of go back to our, where we can normally count it on to be found. And so a, a couple observations. Number one, everybody is always in one mood or another. Mm -hmm. Every mood you're in is not nothing. Apathy is a mood. Mm -hmm. Collected is a mood. And these moods are consistent with a certain biology and body, and they're consistent with certain interpretations. So in terms of one of the first things that we have to do if we want to be able to, to shift our moods is to acknowledge that we have the ability to do that. Meaning I don't shift just, our moods to control our, would you say control I, our moods? I would say design. Or like impact. Like the word design. design, right? I can design a different mood. Number one, once I notice I'm in a certain mood, mm -hmm. I awareness, you self aware. And many of us are terrible observers of our own moods. Mm -hmm. We don't see them as moods half the time. We see them as, well, that's the way things are, right? Mm -hmm. And so the first challenge for many of us is acknowledging that we're in a certain mood. And then once we're in a certain mood, right, then we can look at the avenues we have. We have a language avenue and we have a physical avenue, right? Because those three circles, right? And, and we also, we can also simply intervene on the internal narratives, right? But often it takes another person. Often, like I'd like to say it this way, if you want to shift out of resentment, for example, and into something else, you better be ready to handle the I'm right conversation. Because the I'm right conversation is going to raise its head as soon as you start tinkering here. But I'm right to be in this mood. If you had happened to me, it would happen to you, you'd be in this mood too. Right? So we get very right about the moods that we're in. We become the poster child, right, for that particular mood. And so if you want to navigate out of a mood, you're going to have to be able to navigate the I'm right. Do I want to be right about being in this mood? Or do I want to actually shift it? There's another, and I call it maybe a linguistic trap that many of us, I think, can get a little bit hung up by. It's this notion that, well, if I do that, I'm not being true to myself. 
because I'm in this mood. So I guess I just have to stay here because that's being true to myself. And I would offer, why is being in a mood that you've already observed not serving you very well? Why is that being true to yourself in a way that being conscious about designing something more productive isn't? And I'll, I'll say this about resignation or depression, right? There are certain moods that are beyond coaching and beyond talk therapy. There are certain moods, I think, that there's a biological you know, connection and we need medicine. We need a professional medical doctor because there are certain moods that are way beyond coaching. Right? They don't, they aren't, what I'm talking about here, they're different. Mm -hmm. And I believe they're different because the biology is affected so much that it's really, really challenging. It's really, really challenging. But I'd, I'd say one of the, one of the ways that, that we can we can on purpose shift moods is with our bodies. I mean, simply walking. You know, sometimes having a meeting where you're simply walking. You know, during the meeting, standing up, right, looking at posture. I mean, and there's all sorts of stuff. Whether it's med whether it's meditation, exercise routines, all of that. Clearly, if you want to have a slow, lethargic afternoon. We'll eat a gigantic carb-heavy lunch, right? And, and so it's predictable, right? There are certain things that are predictable, right? But I would say one guideline is we're not responsible for the mood we woke up in. You know, sometimes you just wake up and you're not in a good place. But we are responsible for staying there, right? We are responsible for staying there. And it's a... You know the the whole topic of emotional intelligence, right? There's a there's a, I mean, I don't know what the what the numbers are, but organizations that have some capacity for EQ simply outperform those that don't. Mm -hmm. They simply outperform them in every way. And and you know there's a there's a practice that I was recently taught. The book is called The Untethered Soul, and there's a practice in there that the author introduced, and folks, I've been doing emotional work for over 20 years, I, I never heard this. If I ask you to count to three right now in your head, you could do it, right? So please do it right now in your head, count to three in your head. Easy or hard? Easy, easy. Very easy, very, I can ask you to count to three, and this time, see a number one, see a number two, see a number three. So add a visual element as you're counting to three in your head. So do that right now. Could you do it easy or hard? Easy, easy. Very easy. Now, in this way, you can be said to be the author of your thoughts. You're consciously bringing the one, two, and the three. Now, if I ask you to count to a thousand in your head, how long would it be before an uninvited, unsolicited thought pops in? Not very long. Are you with me? Question, in this, 20 in this, seconds. In this latter example, it's not accurate in the same way that you're the author of those. You're the observer. You didn't consciously author them. They just popped in, right? It's interesting whether we give our attention to these. And y'all, many of these uninvited thoughts are not us at our best. They're often worrisome. They're troublesome. They are not helpful. They don't represent our best self. The practice that the author introduced was, he says, an uninvited guest who is ignored soon departs. By giving these uninvited thoughts our attention, our energy, our conscious awareness, we give them power. Mm -hmm. And y'all, life is unfolding, is it not, in, in front of us in the present moment? 
have you ever had somebody watch a movie so engrossed in the movie and you say their name and they don't even hear you? My daughter all the time, every day. <laughs> and it's not just movies. We can do it here. Are we clear? We can do yep. it here. And we're missing life. Life is here. And his practice is simply lean away from the uninvited guest. Lean away and bring our attention back to the present moment as an emotional well-being practice, right? As a practice to be here and now. Everybody, we understand how important it is to be present, right? And of course, being present has nothing to do with where your feet are, right? Mm. Being, present, being present has to do with the degree to which you are engaged in this and not running around chasing something here, usually in the past or the future. And that, as an emotional well-being practice, I have found value in, and I've, I've begun using, and I've begun teaching in, in my, when I do the emotional intelligence and, and trust module in my, my workshops. That's that great. Practice, as a well-being practice, um, I mean, how conscious do we want to be about our own experience? That's you know, wonderful. Says that he says, if you don't do that, it's like driving a car 50 miles an hour without your hands on the wheel, just going everywhere. Mm -hmm. Just go here, go over here, go over here. And it was like, you know what? I, I think that's true. I think, I think there's, a, there's an intentionality to our consciousness. And then there's a clear separation that we are not our thoughts. We are not our thoughts. We're the observer of them. We're the author of them, but we're not them. We're not them. I love that. Well, Chalmers, we really, really appreciate the conversation today. I know Evan and I were very excited to have you on. And, and uh, I know this was extremely valuable for us, but also for the listening audience. Um, before we let you go, can you just share a little bit about where the listening audience can find out more about you, about your consulting services? Where can they get in contact with you if they want to learn more? That's perfect. My website is www.chalmersbrothers.com. So it it sounds like a law firm, but it's me, right? My middle name, <laughs> my middle name is Chalmers. Um, my last name is Brothers. And so if you Google ChalmersBrothers.com, it'll pop up and there's some videos there. There's also access to my TED Talk and my books. And there's a button that you can email me uh, from there. And uh, if you want to talk about workshops or uh, different program possibilities, uh, I'm, I'm all ears. And um, you know, thank you for having me. It's been a, a joy. It's been a pleasure kind of reconnecting with y'all. And uh yeah, thanks again for a wonderful conversation. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Chalmers. And uh, thank you to the listening audience for tuning in. Uh, make sure to click, click subscribe below to be notified when we have our next episode. Appreciate you both. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Style Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or Opus Private Client, and opinions stated are their own. Yvonne Wantanabe and Evan Wool are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Opus Private Client LLC is not registered in any state or with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. Yvonne's California Insurance License Number 084 
Evans California Insurance License Number 0H04936. Compliance Approval 2023-156226 expires May 2025.